Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 222 of the Solier Pride podcast, and today's guest is Jennifer Kisner. She's been a medical SLP for almost 25 years. She recently achieved her clinical research doctorate from Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions in April 2021 during the pandemic. She currently works as a clinical specialist in the Stanford Head and Neck Oncology Clinic. She's worked at Stanford Healthcare for almost 22 years and has presented at both the state and national conference level on the topics of dysphagia, head and neck cancer, and most recently, single subject design research at ASHA 2021. She obtained her board certification in swallowing and swallowing disorders and is an MBSIMP certified clinician. She also co-organizes a two-day Stanford fees course and is hoping to restart this after a year hiatus due to COVID. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Teresa. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I am doing well. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me and coming back on the podcast again. I know you called me a repeat offender, so I guess I did. You are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you came on, oh gosh, well, how long ago was it? Maybe two-ish years yeah, ago? It was like episodes like 83, 84 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And we talked all about fees and, and the fees courses that you um, help instruct at Stanford. And yeah, so great episodes if anybody's interested in fees training and all that jazz in the acute care setting, go ahead and check those out. So anyways, Jennifer, tell the people a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to recently. So uh, I have been a speech pathologist for um, 24 years, and I have worked uh, mainly in the adult um, acute outpatient settings. Um, I 
recently, uh, about four years ago, went back to school and got my clinical doctorate uh, and graduated last April, which I was just so proud and excited. And a reason that I wanted to talk about this topic, because it was part of my capstone project that I uh, completed. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So, yeah. So what are we going to talk about today? What is what was your capstone project? So I'm really interested in engaging SLPs to think about performing single subject experimental design studies um, using their current case slide caseloads to answer any burning clinical questions that they have. So I did present this topic at ASHA in D.C. last November with my friend and cohort. Uh, from our clinical doctorate program, Dr. Kenyon Martin. Uh, we participated in single subject design research as part of our capstone projects and realized really how practical and feasible it is uh, to perform for clinical speech pathologists. And prior to participating in my clinical doctorate program, I really didn't know very much about single subject designs. So I hope I can plant a little seed today uh, that SSEDs or single subject designs are feasible to complete within your clinical practice. Awesome. Okay. So I just wanted to start with this really kind of at the beginning and start just describing the scientific method that a researcher uses to answer a clinical question. So I'm starting at the beginning here because I want to walk clinicians through the process of performing a research project as the primary investigator or the PI of their own study, um, and that they really can do this type of research within their clinical practice. And I know that we all have these burning clinical questions that we want answers to. So there are three steps to the, to the scientific method. Uh, you have to develop a hypothesis, you have to test the hypothesis, and then you have to replicate it multiple, multiple times. So when you develop a hypothesis, you're making a prediction about an observable phenomenon based on maybe existing knowledge, the literature, or theories. So the three elements that have to be in the hypothesis are you need an independent variable, a dependent variable, and what you expect a change or outcome to be. So a variable is anything really, an object, an event, an idea, anything that type of category that you want to measure or change. So there are two types of variables. There are independent variables and dependent variables. So an independent variable can be thought of as something that is manipulated by the researchers and the dependent variable changes after the independent variable is introduced. So an independent variable causes a change to a dependent variable. And I could talk a little bit more about this in a minute. And then step two in the scientific method is you have to test your hypothesis to see if it's correct. Um, Sometimes we see something with a patient that works and we go, oh, was that by chance? Or do I have something here? And maybe I want to test it um, using the scientific method. And then finally, step three is replication, which really increases the reliability of the relationship between the independent and dependent variables and can show a cause and effect relationship. So now that we've reviewed what the scientific process is, let's define what a single subject experimental design, or I'm just going to say SSED because that's a little shorter. (laughs) So an SSED really is rigorous experimental research design or methodology that turns a clinical problem into a research question. So they have been used for decades in a number of disciplines, including the behavioral study fields, such as psychology, counseling, and rehab. Um, Other names for SSEDs are single subject, intrasubject, or N of one. The reason behind the name of this type of research is that the participant um, or the subject acts as their own control. 
So there are not two groups of participants in this type of study. You have the participants being compared to themselves pre and post a treatment protocol uh, that is hypothesized to show a change in behavior. So again, SSEDs allow us to identify a cause and effect relationship between variables that you're studying. All SSEDs have to have an independent variable and at least one dependent variable. And SSEDs can be done with as few as one participant, but it's um, important to know that it is not a case study, which is really a common error when discussing this type of research. The SSEDs really mirror everyday clinical practice, uh, making it one of the most practical forms of research for clinicians. So kind of the nitty gritty of SSEDs, they they require an A-B paradigm, meaning that pretty much every SSED has an A phase and a B phase. An A phase is your baseline phase. So that's where data is collected about your client's baseline or current performance. So this occurs before you uh, introduce any intervention. And then the B phase is the experimental phase. So this is where the intervention is delivered. So there are typically multiple treatment phases as repetition really is a large piece of the SSEDs. Each phase has multiple data points that are plotted on a graph and they are visually and statistically analyzed. There should be at least five data points in each phase to allow for enough information to see if your intervention made a difference on your patient's performance of a specific behavior. And just to kind of think about the continuum of research methods, you know, we have research that is experimental, we have research that is exploratory, and we have research that's descriptive. SSEDs are experimental. Uh, They are in the cause-effect category. And I just wanted to kind of hit home on this point a little bit more because sometimes SSEDs get um, a little bit of a hard, uh, hard, it's a hard sell because the number of participants are much smaller than our larger studies. So, you know, the most common and highest quality experimental studies are, of course, our randomized controlled trials or quasi-experimental large group studies. These type of studies have a large N. They require two groups, one experimental, one control that does not get the intervention and is being tested and provides a post-study comparison to group to evaluate if the intervention was successful. SSEDs, which are also experimental in the continuum of research methods, are smaller studies using a smaller N and allows us to understand the natural learning trends and the varying ways individuals perform. So, you know, SSEDs may have an unfortunate reputation for being weak because it has a small N, but it is not the case. It is legitimate research methodology that allows us to establish empirically validated treatments and evidence-based practices. I want a big like exclamation point. (laughs) So SSEDs should not be confused with case studies. Case studies are just descriptive studies. They describe general observations. They don't manipulate any variables or they may not even collect any data. They're just observations. Um, SSED studies have really strong social validity because they can be developed based on an individual participant's needs and preferences. And they can be executed in clinical context rather than in a laboratory setting. 
Um, so then this increases the likelihood that other SLPs will be able to replicate the intervention within the constructs of their own work setting. So I hope I've given you a good kind of overview description of what an SSED is compared to other types of studies. Yeah, thank you. I think that would be the big, you know, glaring question. It's like, oh, did Jennifer just give a fancy name for a case study and she's calling it something fancy? But no, no. So, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, ex- I'm excited to hear more. Okay, so there's a few elements that have to have uh, that all SSEDs have to have. So one is repeated measures over a series of phases. Second is that they need to be able to be replicated by other clinicians. Predictability, again, we need a stable baseline. That's that A phase before introducing your treatment or B phase. And then we use visual analysis to to show the results. So just to kind of hone in on those four points um, a little bit more. um, So the SSED relies on repeated collection of data about participant performance for specific behavior. So it really mirrors what we do with our patients and clients every day, right? Because we're constantly collecting data um, to show change over time and if our treatments are working. Um, With the SSEDs, because it is research, you have to make sure that the data is collected in the same way with for the same behavior, given the same intervention methods every day so that we're not, you know, compromising the integrity of the data. And then finally, repeated measures increases the reliability of the data. So if you can... um, Uh, reproduce measures multiple times over many treatment phases, then that shows a little bit more that your um, treatment really affected that patient's behavior. And then replication by repeating treatments over the course of multiple phases, again, you, you decrease the likelihood that some outside variable was responsible for the change from baseline to treatment. And then external validity is uh, shown with replication of the intervention to other studies. So again, external validity is the extent to which research can be generalized beyond the subjects included in the study as benefits from replication of studies can really strengthen confidence in previously discovered findings. So the exciting part here is that this would allow other clinicians to perform the same SSED study on participants in other facilities or maybe with different diagnoses. And over time, these smaller SSED studies can be compiled and evaluated in a systematic review to add to the breadth of literature on various topics. So in speech pathology, we do have an issue of having high ends or high numbers of participants in our research. So what a great way to add to the breadth of research doing smaller single subject experimental designs with same methodology, you know, across various settings, and then bringing all that data together to have, um, to form a systematic review and add to the breadth of literature. Awesome. On any topic. Yeah. 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 So, and then finally, predictability. Um, When the data is stable, prediction is possible. So having the baseline stability prior to introducing intervention is so pivotal in SSCD research. Baseline stability um, is also imperative because the participant acts as their own control. So we're comparing the participant before a treatment to a participant after the treatment, right? So that's where we get that single subject design. We're comparing them to themselves. So the treatment should not begin until a baseline uh, is stable. And uh, Ledford and Gass back in 2014 defined stability as when 80% of those data points on a graph fall within 25% of the median data points. And I can show um, some graphs of this in the show notes for, for listeners who are interested. So 
SSED data are analyzed visually by using various descriptive statistical techniques to show the causal relationship between independent and the dependent variable. So some descriptive terms that you'll hear in SSED research are variability, immediacy, overlap, and consistency. So variability really speaks to the range of the data points that are plotted on a graph. So if they fluctuate too much uh, within a phase, that might show that either the, the data is not stable, right? Or you might have inconclusive results if those data points in the um, treatment phase are too variable. Immediacy is really important because it's how quickly the behavior changes after you've introduced the independent variable. So the quicker the effect of change, the greater the treatment effect can be correlated to uh, the treatment modality. Overlap is when the data points are too similar across phases that the treatment may reveal a smaller treatment effect or maybe no treatment effect. And then finally, consistency has to do with finding patterns across phases. Um, and this can imply a strong experimental control, again, due to cause and effect relationship. So shifting to data analysis just uh, for a few minutes, and again, I will um, give any, I, I will give a lot of um, graphs and things in the show notes for your listeners if they're interested. So since the visual analysis portion of the SSED are so pivotal, I wanted just to review a few key points to remember when we're plotting these data points. So we talked about that there should be about five data points in the A phase and the B phase. The baseline data must be stable before you in initiate your treatment phase. You're going to compare the changes from the data points in your A phase to your B phase to evaluate if your intervention uh, is working. And then just to kind of uh, very basic, when you're looking at the graph, at a graph, the y-axis is where the vertical data points are plotted. The x-axis is where the horizontal points are plotted. And in SSED research, typically that y-axis includes data points on changes to behavior being tested. And the x-axis represents various time points that something is being measured. And then when we look at these graphs, we're looking at things like trends and slopes and levels of the data points across baseline and treatment phases. So this is where the visual analysis comes from. Someone should be able to look at a graph and say, oh, there's a change. Oh, look, from, from A phase to B phase, that looks different. Something happened there. So um, trends are systematic shifts in the value of data over time as you move along uh, to the right on the x-axis. So trends can be characterized as accelerating or upward moving, decelerating or downward moving, or zero-accelerating, no change in data over time. So an accelerating trend would mean that the dependent variable or the behavior being tested improved after you introduce the intervention or the independent variable, and that the treatment may be effective. Conversely, if the trend was zero accelerating, that would mean that there was no change in behavior being tested after you introduced your intervention or independent variable and that the treatment may not be effective. Slopes describe the steepness of a line that is formed by those data points, and it can show how quickly or slowly a behavior is changing once you introduce the independent variable. Um, so the steeper the slope, the quicker the change of behavior is noted from one phase to the next. And then finally, levels, they describe differences in magnitude between data points at the end of one phase and at the beginning of another. So you can look at the last data point in one phase and the first data point in the next phase and see how much the data has shifted either in a positive, negative, or neutral direction. So the larger the shift, 
the greater the change in behavior. That's just a really kind of basic overview that I wanted to give your listeners about kind of how we're analyzing the data. There are also much more complex descriptive uh, visual analysis computations that we can use in SSEDs that help us further quantify changes in the data. Things like split middle method of trend estimation analysis or percentage of non-overlapping data points or standard deviation deviation method of analysis. Now, I know as SLPs, we're not typically trained as statisticians, but there's a lot of tools online that can help you perform these complex analysis. Um, And again, I'm happy to share some of these graphs of these analysis with your viewers if they're interested. So now that you have a better overview of how we analyze the data, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about how you would frame your research question, your SSED research question. So we like to use the PICO or PICO framework um, in which the P stands for the patient population that you're going to study. The I stands for what intervention you'll be testing, and you want to make sure you specify your independent and dependent variables here. C stands for comparing the results to which could be the baseline status or no treatment. And then the O stands for what are the outcomes or results of the study. So this is a really a great place to start. And I would encourage you to think about clinical questions that you have regarding your current caseload or even using the current literature on a treatment paradigm and recreating it to see if it's effective with your patient population. So, for example, if you work with people with Parkinson's and you want to know if a specific voice therapy protocol such as Forte uh, designed by Dr. Edie Hapner and Dr. Aaron Ziegler, um, if that would work for them, you could use an SSED to test your hypothesis. So there are many types of SSEDs used to collect and analyze data to judge the changes in the target behavior. The research question really guides which um, type of SSED you're going to use, and they all have their strengths and weaknesses. So again, the most basic SSED has a baseline phase to ensure stability, and then a treatment phase where your um, independent variable is introduced. So there, the four types that I just wanted to mention were um, a withdrawal reversal design, a multiple baseline design, an alternating treatment design, and a, a changing criteria design. So I wanted to give a couple of examples of these because I think it'll kind of bring everything I've been talking about um, home and give it a little perspective using an example. So the withdrawal reversal designs are the most commonly used SSEDs, and recent literature reveals a strong preference among researchers for the term reversal design. The most basic reversal design is an ABA study design where the A phase is to establish baseline stability. The B phase is when your uh, treatment is introduced. And then the second A phase is you withdraw the treatment and see if the data reverts back to the baseline phase. So um, again, the purpose of of a reversal phase is to determine whether behavior would have remained unchanged if the intervention was not introduced. And it's important because it really increases the internal validity of the study by establishing that causal relationship between independent and dependent variables. So an example of a reversal design is Uh, Coyle and Cole's 2004 uh, study, uh, their research question was, what is the effect of video self-monitoring and monitoring and modeling on the off-task classroom behavior of children with autism? 
So for their PICO question, their participants were three male children diagnosed with moderate to severe autism, uh, aged nine to 11, two males, one female. And their intervention was they used video self-monitoring and modeling of off-task behaviors, which was the dependent variable. And it was described as any behavior that was incompatible with the on-task behavior in an independent work task. So the on-task behavior consisted of behaviors needed to complete an independent task efficiently. So the comparison was not using any modeling or monitoring of off-task behaviors, and their outcome showed improvement in self-monitoring of off-task behaviors by all children in the study. And so, uh, for example, the data for one participant revealed in the baseline phase, the participant had up to 30 seconds of off-task behaviors at a time. And then when the independent variable was implemented, the number of off-task behaviors immediately reduced to below five seconds at a time. And so this shows a steep change from that A phase to the B phase. And then when the independent variable was removed, the number of off-task behaviors went back up to about 10 to 25 seconds at a time. A second B phase actually was um, introduced and again showed immediate reduction of off-task behaviors. So these changes noted between each phase were quick with steep slopes showing reduced off-task behaviors with when the intervention was given and the recurrence of off-task behaviors when intervention was removed. So that's just an example of a reversal design. And hopefully I kind of described it enough that you can imagine visually how the data points looks right on the, yep, yep. Uh, on the graph. So then another uh, study design for SSEDs are called the multiple baseline design. And it's really useful for interventions that are irreversible due to learning effects and when a treatment can't be withdrawn. So there are three primary ways that a multiple baseline design can be implemented. Data can be collected separately on three or more behaviors in one person or behaviors of three or more individuals or behaviors in three or more situations. So the effects of the intervention are demonstrated by the intervention, by introducing the intervention to different baselines at different points in time. So the rationale for this is having a staggered baseline is that if a dependent variable changes when a treatment is introduced for one participant, it might be a coincidence. However, if the dependent variable changes when the treatment is in introduced for multiple participants at differing time points, then it's really unlikely to be a coincidence. Uh, an example of a multiple baseline design is um, from Bourgeau in 1992. Um, their research question was, what are the effects of using memory wallets in conversations with persons with dementia? So their PICO question, there were nine subjects diagnosed with mild to moderate de dementia, three females, six males, and their intervention was they used memory wallets to self-prompt factual information during prompted conversations with familiar partners. So the memory wallets contain 30 pictures and sentences about familiar persons, places, and events that each participant had difficulty remembering. And then they compared it to no memory wallet. And their outcome was improved, conversa improved conversations with familiar conversational partners following putting together the memory wallet and a brief orientation of its use. So all subjects learned to use the memory wallets to improve their conversations by making more factual statements. So that was pretty cool. For participants, the researchers looked at 
on-topic statements made across um, three topic areas. They wanted participants to talk about their lives, their family, and activities of the current day. So a baseline phase represented total on-topic statements made during a five-minute conversational probe with conversational partners without the memory wallet guides. Um, and when looking at participant one's data, he scored very low for each data point um, in that staggered baseline phases for all of the topics. His average baseline phases were three to four on-topic statements without using a, a memory wallet. And then when they introduced the memory wallet, his um, topic statements, on-topic statements moved from three to four up to 20 to 25 with some topics. So that just really shows that uh, the memory wallets work not just for one area, but for different topics that the patient maybe wanted to have conversations with to their loved ones. So that was cool. Okay, so um, alternating treatment design studies are uh, the next study design I wanted to talk about. And that's when you have two or more treatments that are alternated relatively quickly on a regular schedule. It's used less frequently uh, than other treatment SSED treatment designs, but it's good, a very quick and effective way of comparing treatments um, only when they're fast acting. So for example, if you're trying to differentiate student behaviors using both positive and negative reinforcement, um, maybe you could do positive attention for studying could be used one day and mild punishment for not studying the next. Or one treatment could be implemented in the morning and another in the afternoon. Or the interventions can be completed within the same class time. Typically, alternating treatment study designs only have one treatment phase, and the baseline phase is optional, but it's recommended. And then an example of this is Hua in 2020. Uh, their research question was, what are the effects of the paraphrasing strategy plus vocabulary knowledge instruction on reading comprehension and vocabulary knowledge in students with reading difficulties compared to the paraphrasing strategy condition alone? So for their PICO question, they had six students, two females, four males, age 12 to 14. And the researchers wanted to compare the combined effects of a vocabulary instruction model, which uses concept maps and paraphrasing strategies, and then use an RAP, read, ask, paraphrase model, on um, the uh, reading comprehension of six students with reading difficulties. And they compared it to using only the RAP alone. So with this study, the outcomes were that the visual analysis and randomization test confirmed that the additional benefit of doing the RAP treatment was only positive for one out of the six students. So uh, the study results differing from the other ones that I showed. But if I look at um, analysis for one student, um, it looked like both treatments showed improvement. So that, you know, then then the uh, researcher could go back and say, okay, if both of these showed improvement, which do we just choose one, right? So, and then finally, uh, with the previous design uh, study methods, they, there was an expectation that large changes will occur immediately once an independent variable is initiated. However, the thought behind criteria changing designs is that the target behavior can be increased or decreased incrementally to meet uh, new criteria levels set for each 
treatment phase. So therefore, this type of study design may be more appropriate to evaluate programs that require gradual changes to a target behavior, such as a tongue strengthening protocol, which I'll talk about in just a second. So with this study design, each treatment phase acts as a baseline phase for the following phase. So experimental control is shown with repeated changes in behavior that meet new criteria level set for each phase. Therefore, stability needs to be established prior to increasing or decreasing criteria levels. Um, And a reversal is typically not necessary for this type of study. So an example of this study was actually from my capstone project that I completed for my clinical doctorate work, and I'm currently working on trying to get it published. So the research question was, uh, what are the effects of an intensive tongue strengthening protocol on people treated for tongue cancer with surgery, reconstruction, and adjuvant chemoradiation? There were five participants aged 56 to 68 who were four months to three years post-treatment. There were two males and three females. The intervention was a five-week intensive tongue strengthening program using the Iowa Oral Performance Instrument. And there was also a pre and post swallow quality of life scale that was used to gauge participant perception of changes in oral phase of swallow. Uh, The comparison was a pre to post lingual pressure analysis, and the outcomes were improved lingual pressures for all participants and also improved perception of oral swallow function. So for one of my participants, for example, their baseline lingual pressures were six to eight kilopascal. Kilopascal is just the unit of measure we use for uh, measuring um, tongue pressures. And then when the intervention was introduced, the participants' lingual pressure went up to 12 to 16. Um, kilopascal in the second week. And by the end of the five weeks, the participants' maximum pressures uh, were up at 21 to 23 kilopascal. So it shows that stepwise improvement in their lingual pressures over time. So I just wanted to kind of end with um, taking a little time to talk about how I was able to complete my first SSED to give your listeners um, kind of guidance and hope that you can do this type of research within your clinical setting. So I did complete this project, like I said, as requirements for my clinical doctorate degree and had support from my capstone committee, as well as from colleagues and and friends and anyone who would listen to me. (laughs) Yes. So first, um, I had been seeing a lot of patients treated for tongue cancer with partial glossectomies and reconstruction and then requiring chemoradiation. And they were they were young. They were in their 50s and 60s. And I would hear over and over that they were so happy to be cancer free after treatment, but that they would love to be able to go out to a restaurant with their family and friends and have a proper meal. So they would report watching others eat a steak while they were eating a bowl of soup for dinner. So this affected their quality of life with respect to eating. And I thought about what I could, what we could do for these patients. And I came up with a hypothesis from these clinical experiences that maybe performing an intensive exercise uh, protocol over several weeks, we can improve their chewing efficiency and overall perception of improvement in quality of life with respect to eating and swallowing. So the first thing I did was delve into the literature and search for as many articles as I could regarding the tongue, tongue strengthening, and treatments for tongue cancer to improve overall eating efficiency. I thought I knew a lot about the tongue. I learned so much more about the tongue. (laughs) 
So, you know, from the muscle makeup, you know, learning about the sarcomeres, which are the smallest muscular unit involved in a muscle contraction to understanding muscle fiber makeup of the tongue. And there's some great articles by Laurie Burkhead, Heather Clark, two SLP researchers, um, and also um, Kent and Stahl have great articles that really delve into the tongue muscle makeup. They're really good ones if you're if your listeners are interested. And I also learned about normal lingual pressures for age and genders across the lifespan. So there are great articles by Steerwalt and Humans in the early 2000s, and Katrina Steele has, has some great articles as well. I reviewed systematic reviews on tongue exercises and swallowing for a variety of diagnosis to get a picture of how and what exercises worked, and also looked at the APTA physical therapy literature on improving muscular strength, as well as thinking about theories of neuroplasticity and the brain's ability to modify and change. So it was amazing to me that there were so few uh, systematic reviews on tongue strengthening because the methods of the studies were so different. So they were hard to compare. Uh, There were differences in overall exercise protocols with respect to dosage um, recommendations for frequency of exercise rate, intensity, specificity, and endurance of tasks. So the results of these studies led me to realize that there were not any treatment doses specifically for people treated with tongue cancer with multimodality treatment. I also looked specifically at exercises in the head and neck cancer patients, um, including tongue cancer and so many great articles. Um, Nicole Rogas-Puglia and Jerry Logeman have great articles on this, Kathy Lazarus and also the MD Anderson group led by Kate Hutchinson. So after my lengthy chart review, it was hard to kind of get out of the chart review because there were so many great articles to, to go over, um, but it helped me to come up with my clinical question that in people treated for tongue cancer with the triple modality treatment would participating in this intensive tongue strengthening protocol improve their overall eating efficiency. So then I needed to devise my exercise protocol and again went back to the literature review to to help me. Um, I decided to use the Iowa Oral Performance Instrument Tool as my independent variable, and I decided on a five-week exercise protocol where participants completed an endurance and a strengthening exercise twice daily. So then I needed to decide on my study methodology, and I thought that because my exercise protocol was a progressive treatment exercise protocol, and my hypothesis was that participants would improve their lingual pressures over time, that a changing criteria study design would work best. And remember, this type of study, you don't need to have a reversal because the participants are learning a behavior that's not quickly reversed. So then I devised my inclusion and exclusion criteria and then devised um, all of the steps of the study from start to finish. So this is where you could ask for some assistance from a researcher in your setting or someone from your graduate program to review your study methods. And it's so important here, you want to be specific because if other people are interested in the same topic and they can replicate that study in their setting to possibly add validity to the study results, that's really important. Um, And for me, it was kind of one of the fun parts of 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 being the first uh, primary investigator in my study. So after I put all of the study methods together and worked out all the details, it was time to send in my application to the Institutional Review Board or the IRB. 
So the IRB is an administrative body who evaluate all research projects to ensure ethical treatment of participants. So their goal is to protect the rights, welfare, and privacy of human research subjects. There's an online training portal called City Training that most IRBs require researchers to complete. Um, and the training really gives a background into why we need to ensure ethical treatment into human uh, research participants. So after obtaining IRB approval, I was so excited. And then COVID hit. And I was unable to initiate uh, beginning my participant recruitment um, for about five months. I just waited for the IRB to tell me that I could start my study, but they never did. Ah. So I went back to them and I said, what do I need to do so that I can move forward with this study? And they told me that if I could have all of the study requirements completed through virtual visits, then I could start my study. So I revised my methods uh, with the help of my facility, my capstone committee, and my family who helped, you know, help me remain sane. Um, (laughs) I, I revised them and, you know, made everything virtual. And then I took my revisions back to the IRB for reapproval. And then when I finally obtained that, I could start my study and start initiating participant um, recruitment. Um, Maintaining my drive and being flexible really helped me to move this process forward during, you know, a worldwide pandemic. (laughs) I'm so amazed that you were able to do all this virtually, Jennifer. Like this is so, I, I think just so inspiring because I think so many times we're we're bound by these limitations right now, you know, and it just, it is what it is. And it's, do we just wait and wait and wait and wait, or are there ways to move forward and, and adapt? So I love that you were able to do that. Definitely adapted to move forward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So with participant recruitment, um, I ran a report through my electronic medical records to find participants who met the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, I had a research assistant help with contacting the participants um, because for me, I didn't want um, I didn't want to be the researcher asking. So having the research um, assistant who didn't know any of the speech pathologist um, in our clinic. I felt that was easier, but you can also call the participants yourself. Um, We also initially were going to have flyers and handouts in our waiting room so that potential participants can review, um, but we couldn't do that uh, due to COVID. Once we did talk to the participants, it was important to give them a time frame to get back to us regarding their participation. So we gave them a week to kind of look at the study, see if it was something that they were interested in and give us a response. And then we obtained official written uh, participant consent, which was really cool to know that you have people that are going to be um, participating in a project that you designed. Um, So we reviewed all the parts of the study with the participants. I actually made a project calendar and I sent that um, to the patients that had all of the steps that were required to complete the research uh, project. And then it was time to start the study. Again, a surreal time to actually start the study. I had recruited five participants and I was just so thankful that they were willing to participate um, in in my study. Um, I'm sure all novice researchers, when they do their first study, are like, oh my gosh, there's people who are actually going to do it. Yeah. (laughs) That's how I felt. I sent all of the study equipment to the participants um, after they signed the consent, sent it, you know, via FedEx. And then I kept uh, data tracking information. We have a, a secure box account in my facility. So all of the data was 
that I tracked for each week um, was was kept there. Um, I also had a tracking form that helped keep me organized during my weekly virtual visits. All participants were de-identified. So on the top of the page, it would just say participant A, B, and C, but it helped me kind of keep organized. And then because each participant started at different time points, my study took about two and a half months to get all of the participants through um, all of the requirements. So after I had collected all of my data points for the study, it was time to begin analyzing uh, the data. I did have help from my um, my school uh, with this piece to make sure that I was using all the descriptive statistical analysis correctly. But there are a lot of like YouTube video tutorials from professors around the world that are free to watch and other uh, free online resources from universities that you can use to help you understand this descriptive statistics portion. I use Microsoft Excel for my analysis. And currently, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm working on getting my research published in a journal. Um, I presented data, uh, this data at ASHA and also did a virtual poster at ASHA. And now I'm here talking about it with you today. Yes. So hopefully that's, you know, motivating to uh, listeners that, you know, it's something that is achievable yes. to do. Yeah. Um, and then just to kind of to conclude and wrap up, um, SSEDs require research rigor similar to other research methodologies. There are many types of SSED designs with the reversal design being the most common. Um, visual analysis of the results are really key in the SSED research designs. A stable baseline must be established prior to initiating your intervention. Um, the greater the slope or the level from baseline to treatment, the stronger the outcomes you're treatment was effective. Choosing the appropriate type of SSCD study depends on your clinical research question, um, and it can be used with your current caseload to um, evaluate effectiveness of your treatment. So there are a lot of resources that your um, listeners, if they're interested, can delve into more, um, and I can add these to the show notes. Um, And that's all that I wanted to talk about and really wanted to thank you again for the opportunity to come on and share this information with your listeners. Awesome. I love this so much, Jennifer. I think I'm so in awe that you, I'm I'm always in awe of people that work on their doctorate while working full time, but also you throw in COVID and you switched your entire project to virtual. Okay. Got it. Yes. (laughs) In the moment, it was just what, what, what can I do to take a step forward? Yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't need to take a leap, but I just kept going. I need to have forward motion. If I did one thing, that was a success. And I was like, okay, I got there. And then I would take another step. And then over time, I would look back and go, okay, I actually have made progress here. But it was definitely, you know, as an adult learner and someone who hadn't been back to school in like 16 years to go back on this journey of getting my clinical doctorate, it was definitely something where it was a marathon and not a sprint. Yeah. (laughs) It's taken my time. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So, so how how many, um, how many participants did you end up getting? So I wanted to get six. I had five. And so um, I have analyzed the data and I'm trying now to figure out um, which journal I'd like to try to publish it in and um, having people kind of help me change my massive capstone into a very concise, short uh, journal article. Um, but yeah, there were five participants and they were... Um, one or two of them were, were patients that I had worked with, um, and the others I, I did not know. And they were 
they were all so funny. I'll give you one little quick anecdote that they all kind of wanted to know who was doing better. Oh my God. How, how are my, <laughs> how are my tongue pressures compared yes. to the other guy? And, That's so funny. and I was like, I can't tell you yeah. all of these. And they're like, no, just, just tell me if I'm in the top. Am I, are my tongue pressures better than theirs? And I just, again, I love their enthusiasm, motivation. They wanted to add to research in this area because it was so near and dear to them. And I had one participant tell me, um, every person who has tongue cancer and has to have a large resection and reconstruction and all this treatment should go through your uh, exercise protocol. And that was just, that was the best to to say that, you know, she felt like it really um, helped her with respect to being able to have um, not just soup at dinner when her friends were having steaks. Did you have any, any like surprising outcomes or anything? You know, I think, as SLPs, as we, you know, I, I mean, you have close to 25 years of experience, you've seen quote unquote miracles. I mean, you've seen people that you never thought you'd get back to eating and drinking again. And through your wonderful therapy, they're able to do that. Was there anything in this structured research design that really surprised you other than just being a treating SLP? There was one participant who had the largest tongue resection and also had to have, um, some teeth removed. And so had to like get partial. So he has partial and he has, you know, a large resection and it was kind of nearing towards um, Thanksgiving. And he said, I'm going to have turkey on Thanksgiving. And he was someone who was, you know, had feeding tube, had, you know, was all on liquids. And I said, okay. So the person with the largest tongue reconstruction or uh, resection made the most improvement. And I think it had everything had to do with just who he was and his heart and his drive. And gosh, he was he sent me a message just listing the things that he ate at Thanksgiving, turkey and all the fixing. And I sat there looking at his email and I just got so teared up because he was I mean, it wasn't me. This was this was who he was. He was a man who said, you know, he got diagnosed with cancer. He was like, I'm going to I'm going to get over this and get back to doing what I want to do. And so it was it surprised me that he had the largest resection and had the most improvement in his tongue. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's why we do what we do, isn't it? It is. And I'll tell you one other one that just came to mind. A participant went from the normal pressures we think of uh, are like anywhere from 40 to 80 kilopascal, if you look at the literature. So I had one participant who her lingual pressure started in the 20s, but then at the end of the treatment, she was within the normal range of lingual pressures for someone who didn't have tongue cancer. So that was really cool too. And she was very excited to get to that point where she's like, okay. Um, and I think that gave her drive and motivation to try eating more challenging foods because she knew that her tongue can handle it, that she can do it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jennifer. This has been awesome. Thank you. I love that. I, I love the whole, I, I've always been, you know, I've always had the research bug. So I love just this whole clinician to researcher thing that you've done here. And, and I love it so much. And I'm 
I'm so proud of you that you finished your doctorate during COVID. Amazing, amazing. So <laughs> thank you. And I know there's a lot of information that I gave, but you know, if people are interested, hopefully they can come back and listen to it, you know, parts of it when, you know, when it is. And, you know, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, I am happy to give my um, contact information in the show notes. Awesome. Awesome. Any, any final thoughts? Um, the only thing that I would like to plug, if that's okay, is, um, yeah. I'm finally getting back to getting my fees course, um, in person. Um, we had two years with COVID that we didn't do it, but we're looking to do our, um, our two day fees course at Stanford in June. Um, I'm just finalizing the date. So look out for that. Um, we'll try to um, advertise it in as many places as we can. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Appreciate you. Thank you. You too. Bye, Teresa. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.